I think that students, when you're so close to their age, and then when you're like me, who gets mistaken for a student in the hallway, like... (laughs) A tattooed high schooler? Straight up, I had on, like, a nice dress shirt, and I was using the faculty restroom, and someone said to me, you're not supposed to be in here. (laughs) I was like, I have a a pass. Like, um... But, like... I think those students who desperately need a relationship of, like, some sort of mentorship, um, subconsciously, like, attach to teachers that are closer to them in age because they seem more accessible and, like, they're going to be more lenient and... I mean, not like I'm some authoritarian crazy person, but, like, it's just that that kind of thing is, like, I always had a problem with the teachers at my school who would say, like, it's cool, you can talk to me about, like, getting wasted on the weekends, and I'm just like, that's really not, I'm not (laughs) saying that, like, everybody should be straight edge, but, like, it's really not cool to tell a 15-year-old, like, if you're a 35-year-old coach at Arlington High School, and you're like, you can tell me you got wasted, I'm not going to tell anybody. Like, come on. You're just a weird good old boy with, like, some predatory stuff going on. (laughs) I like that. Dude, it is awful. All right, let's get this thing started. Okay, let's do it. Podcast. This is your host, Craig Biderman. I'm excited to bring you today's conversation with an everyday educator and a daily disruptor, my friend Julian Baker. Uh, very excited because Julian's like, if you haven't heard of her or of her music, she's like taking off right now, which is freaking sweet. Uh, it seems like just the other day I was discovering her. Uh, album on Bandcamp, and I was like, oh, this is really great and really sad. Uh, I'm going to have to get a copy of this. And now she's sold thousands of copies of her of her album signed to a major label and is all over the world, opening for all sorts of bands, playing in front of thousands of people a night. Uh, but she got her start doing DIY gigs, playing basements, playing VFW halls in her band Forrester. And now she's doing all sorts of kick-ass shit. You'll also get to hear some tunes from her new album, Turn Out the Lights, which came out in October through Matador Records. And later in this chat, you'll get to hear a little bit about how that came to be. 
I'm excited to bring this one to you uh, because Julie and I have been, uh, we started as pen pals through email a couple years ago. I got to play a gig uh, at Leslie University where my partner Katie Ham graciously allowed me to play that gig. And then Julie and I kind of uh, kick, kicked off a friendship, which was really sweet, which was really awesome. And I've been very thankful to have uh, her support over the last couple of years and to support her. So you get to hear a great conversation that we have about uh, recovery, uh, about running. Actually, that's going to come up a little bit later. But we talk about recovery, mental health, as well as what it's like coming up from honestly having no expectations to then being discovered and signed and now having to just change your entire life and career trajectory. Uh, When you think you're going one direction, life takes you another. And that's basically what this conversation is. Before we get to that, just want to thank folks who have shared our vinyl giveaway. If you haven't seen it, please go to at edupunkspod on Twitter and or Instagram and share the image that we have up there because we you can win a free copy of the new S. Carey album, 100 Acres, or the new and the new Howdy record, Cranberry. Uh, we're giving away two free vinyl copies of that album you have until this Friday night. To share it and follow uh, at Edubunks Pod, the at Austin Pudding, and at In Between Spins. You'll hear from Jacqueline uh, from In Between Spins later in this episode. Uh, and yeah, let's get to this conversation with Julian, and you'll hear from me a little bit later. segue breaks or to moderate the conversation i get into like this kind of voice Mm -hmm. i get into my deeper register not to throw you off Uh, (laughs) um, i know the real you yeah okay good (laughs) well i'm julian baker and i am from memphis and i'm currently living in nashville and i'm a touring musician and i tour full-time and make music as my job and uh, but I'm actually off this month, and so I'm doing a lot more. I just demo and read and run. Yeah. That's about all that I do. I think we're gonna get into those things a little bit later. Yeah. <laughs> um. What? <laughs> but what? So you've been making music for a while, though. So like, what were some of your gateways into music? Hmm. Okay. So. I mean, I took piano lessons as a child, uh, just like I did soccer and taekwondo, Mm -hmm. you know, all those activities your parents have you do when they're trying to figure out what their child will do. Um, I was an awful, errant student, uh, could not be made to practice, but I liked, you know, just like playing for fun. And then I didn't really ever think of myself as a musician um, even when I started trying to teach myself guitar, I must have been like 12 or so, and I would just use my dad's guitar to try to teach myself chords and stuff. And then I started going to shows at the skate park of Memphis, which is now closed. Aww. But I went to 
I remember the moment that someone told me. So, Underoath was playing there. I was talking to this girl at my school, and she was like, Underoath is here tonight. And in my mind before that, like, either a band was playing at a stadium and they were rock stars Mm -hmm. and tickets were $50 Mm -hmm. or they were nothing. Like Mm -hmm. I I had, that was my skewed, like on TV, not in a band. Yeah. It's Um, like, I'm going to a church gymnasium for free or my parents are taking out a loan for these tickets. (laughs) Exactly. Or like, but see, I didn't even know of the church gymnasium thing. So I thought that like the music industry as it were, was like you play at an open mic in a coffee shop and then you get a record deal and you play a stadium because that's kind of how like the childhood public imagination like mm-hmm. crafts but that's not how it works no exactly <laughs> and so she was like i was like how much are tickets oh my god i'll never be able to afford them and she was like they're like 10 bucks <laughs> so i did your brain like explode a little it bit exploded <laughs> i was like i could see under oath for 10 dollars mm-hmm. and then I begged and begged and begged and my dad took me to go see Under Oath and I lost my ever-loving mind. And then I was like, what do you mean that all the shows here are anywhere from 8 to $10? And so I started going there straight up every weekend. Like, I wouldn't even know what band was playing and I would just go hang out at the skate park and see. I mean, dang, like, I saw Poison the Well there. I saw Despise Icon there. Mm-hmm. I saw, like... And that was really my entry point into heavier music, but also not just heavier music, because I would also go and see, like, you know, Cartel and The Starting mm-hmm. Line and mm-hmm. all the, like, pop punky bands. But it was my entry point into thinking that it was an achievable reality for me to play in a band like that. And so, because there was were that just no- from going, Was that just from going to the gigs, though? Going to the gigs, seeing that, like, these are more normal people, like, without a light show and a mm-hmm. lighting truss and, like, a they're not... A full rig of people. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, openers were always, like, local bands. Mm-hmm. And I thought, like, oh, those people are just normal folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so Smith 7 used to run a lot of house shows, but they also used to book a bunch of shows at the skate park. And then I found out about the Smith seven house and learned what house shows were. Hmm. And that was even more of a confirmation of like, these people are just in a living room and there's like 30 people here to see them and we can barely move. And that's really cool. So then I started a band. Uh, I didn't start the band. We started the band. Um, And then when did you start? When did you start the band? Probably I was like 14 or 15, maybe end of 14, beginning of 15, because I met Matthew Gilliam, who's the drummer of Forrester. Um, I met him like freshman year, and then it was probably sophomore year we started making music, and junior and senior year, all we did was play shows. Like, we played a show, it felt like every weekend. And I had a teacher that used to like give me extra time on all my homework because she'd be like i know you have a show this weekend (laughs) like play the it was called the star killers at that point and she would like play the star killers in class it was like so funny but um (laughs) yeah and so then 
we would meet bands like we would get booked on bigger shows Mm -hmm. with bands that were from out of town and of course we were so green and we would be like what's it like being (laughs) on the road being a real just trying to get any little information you can (laughs) dude yeah and then so we would meet these bands that would like take a little bit of time for us which like now i realize like maybe was because we punished them into doing it like we were punishers so um, <laughs> we well, were hustling right you were dude, hustling. yeah and so like we would just ask them like how do you do it and yeah. then they sort of like obliquely explained i don't know just facebook message some friends in other cities and like try to play it there like um yeah, it's crazy. We met this band called Run Forever that used okay. to play. Um, I don't know if you remember them, but like, no, I don't think I know. Dude, they they're like a older band. I don't think they really do stuff anymore. But okay, um, they were just like real punks. Like, told nice. me and the Starkillers boys how to dumpster. They were like from Pittsburgh and like <laughs> let, let us sleep there when we came through and played a show to like five people. Nice. It's really sweet because we were so young. And I think looking back now, I can tell that they were like, oh, boy, these kids, (laughs) like, you have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that, like, when I first started going to gigs, I think that was part of my perspective, too, um, because I was super naive and the music that I was getting into early wasn't necessarily like music that I wanted to, like, go to shows for. It was Mm -hmm. like the first CD that I was ever given was the first Reliant K CD. Yeah. Is that, um, Marilyn Manson ate my girlfriend. No, no, the self titled one. What is the one before that? Oh my God. With like, uh, it's not Sadie Hawkins dance. Yeah. What's the one with Sadie Hawkins dance and like excommunicate. Um, I don't know. I was like a youth group. We have the records over here. So I can, Katie, Katie, Katie's the Reliant K person. I have to admit that. But um, Reliant K. But I wasn't like going out of my way to go see Reliant K. Granted, I saw Reliant K in a church basement with Anne Berlin, and yeah. it was one of those things where I was like, "Wait, what? This is a thing I can do? All right, yeah. okay." And that's what really got me into it. But I didn't know it was a thing that you did. Um, and so when I started making a band, I had no idea what the hell I was doing, and I was like, "So how do you?" How do you make songs? I'm just so used to hearing the songs. How do you actually put them together? And so I started meeting friends who actually knew some of that stuff. And I uh, picked up a bass because it was Mm -hmm. the easiest thing for me to wrap my brain around. And I just started plucking away at that. And we just had fun writing like super simple, stupid songs. And we're playing like in our high school at like the talent show and learning all those things until we um, got into high school and actually started or got further in high school and started like actually like actively trying to gig. And Mm. the first real gig we had was with that band New Year's Day. Do you you know that band? Yes. 2005. They were nothing yet. And we opened for them. Dude, yeah, I know my band opened for the Rocket Summer. Like, what? <laughs> yeah, well, and it's also crazy that like those bands, there was this scene of very hyper specific interest of like 
you could get like if those bands were to play at the indie bar in town maybe like 10 people would come but those bands would play at the church basement and straight up 300 people would come and it's just like dang it's such a like well and i also think that you you grew up pacific northwest yeah in oregon yeah okay not a huge scene well like same in a way of the south right so like christian metalcore was so huge because it first of all like all of the bands coming out of the highly like evangelical traditionalist world but that also wanted to be a part of a hardcore scene there's not really a hardcore scene like there is in boston baltimore new york san diego uh there's not really one of those in or like at least to me it was much smaller you know maybe in florida like there's a whole bunch more like florida metal bands but at the era where i was going to shows it was a lot of metalcore Mm -hmm. and then those bands would tour like mostly in the south you know all the christian metalcore coming out of florida and atlanta and like it was insane how popular it would be, but only to a specific subgroup of people because they all just sort of like cleaved together. One hundred percent, and that out of was necessity. That was exactly what happened when I was in college. Yeah, and I got into a metalcore band in right. what oh uh, seven to twenty ten. I think I played in a metalcore band. I think this might be the same timeline you're looking at, and so we yep. would get on really any metal gig that could come through Oregon that wanted a local because we were like one of two right in Oregon. And so we would jump on these gigs, like opening a gig for power man, 5,000 opening a gig. Yeah. Opening a gig for Oceana, opening a gig for, uh, the Tony Danza tap dance extravaganza. I saw that band freaking play with like, (laughs) it seems like, like, this is probably an in- invented bill, but, like, that whole scene, like, them, Drop Dead Gorgeous, I Wrestle the Bear once. Yes! Like, Heavy Heavy Low Low. Like, these unspeakable memories from like, my childhood. how do you make that music happen? I know! <laughs> They're so good! Oh, my God. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, like, that, that was so true. Like, there was only... The people who came loved it. And that's mm-hmm. what we learned to, like, appreciate. And we yeah. were, like... Okay, the people who like it, like it. People in our college town don't really seem to care. We play some frat parties, whatever. We destroy it, but we're not going to really expect to make a bunch of fans right now. <laughs> um, so when did you start like making music for yourself? Like, Were you doing that the whole time? Or... It's weird. Like, I never – I'll probably talk about this until the day I die. But like, I never <laughs> – um, even when I released the solo record, like I released Spray Ninkle on Bandcamp and like shared a Facebook link and I was still in Forrester. I was just like, hey, here's this thing I made because like me and the boys are working on a record and I had these songs and I thought it was just going to be kind of like, you know, when Jeremy Enoch released that freaking incredible, very delicate solo record, but he's still Jeremy Enoch of Sunny Day Real Estate. You yeah. Know? Yeah. He's got this beautiful solo record, but. The dude's main bag is Sunny Day. So, um, I was like, yeah, it'll just be like one of those things. It'll just be fun. 
Um, and then we were still touring as Forrester. We were still playing shows as Forrester, make, made demos, and were working on a record. And then I, it just like, I don't know. We signed to 6131. Mm-hmm. Brand Ankle was completed with Forrester's, and so that came out first. And then I started touring full time on that, and I, um, like had this tension between like I have an opportunity to do all these like crazy things um touring the solo record and I sort of had like a sit-down conversation with the guys in my band and I was like um I feel awful like I feel like I am abandoning you guys I don't want to say no to these opportunities because they're crazy but I also this was not my plan like Forrester was always my plan and I remember, like, having a conversation with Matt where he was like, are you an idiot? We would never want you to say no to these things. Like, what are you talking? Don't be dumb. Mm-hmm. But I was, I, like, remember calling him on the phone, like, blubbering, crying, and just being like, you guys are going to think that I don't care about this band that I sold out. And I thought that my whole scene was going to, like, alienate me. And Turn Green poor. Day on you? Yeah, that's, like, not <laughs> what happened. Everybody was just mega supportive, which in turn, like, endeared me to them, right? Which is why, mm-hmm. like, Matt came out and played all the Tennessee shows. And, like, the people, like, that opened up. Like, I don't know. It just, everything stayed way more amicable than I was imagining. Which, of course, is probably a product of my anxious brain thinking that... Everyone's gonna like deride me for <laughs> taking this opportunity, but oh yeah, no, I uh, I I can't really, I literally can't relate to um, the idea of getting like discovered or anything like that. But I had similar thoughts when I first just decided to move across the country to literally start over my life. Mm-hmm. I had a bunch of friends like, "You're just like gonna leave us here?" I'm like, "Well, I gotta." I got to go do something for myself because I'm feeling like kind of stagnant here. And it was one of those things that every time I go home now, it's almost like a homecoming every single time. I feel like people are more excited to see me now (laughs) than when I was just there. (laughs) Well, dude, like that's the thing that's crazy is that I didn't feel at all stagnant in Memphis. I just wanted to have a marketable skill semi-related to what I wanted. And so I went to MTSU because I got a hella scholarship there. And, um, that was the best, like, financial and, uh, like, future-oriented decision. As much as I hate to admit that I, like, I was trying to be, like, you know, not a sellout, but I didn't think, I didn't think that music was going to work out, see? Like, because everybody's told that, like, yeah, this will be a hobby, or you'll be in a moderately successful band for a couple years, Mm -hmm. um, and then you'll have to get a, quote, real Real job job. yeah Yeah. so I was like all right what's my real job gonna be I want it to be something in music so I moved away and my intention was always like Memphis is my home but now I live in Nashville you know for many reasons my partner lives here and um you know she works in music too uh but when I come back to Memphis it's like just a giant weight gets lifted off my shoulders and like going back and seeing all my old friends is like incredible 
You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it feels very welcoming and um, familial. Especially, especially when you're, like, all over the world and you, you come back oh home to what you know and what's comfortable. Yeah. And you're like, God, I missed this. Yeah. No, I was there for, like, a weekend last weekend. And it just broke my heart but yeah. also made me so happy. It's like, mm. oh, I miss this place. Uh, to be completely honest, I didn't realize how long Tennessee is as a state. Like I've looked at like, cause I was out in Kentucky last around this time last year. And mm-hmm. I just was like looking at, cause I'd never been there. And I was just looking at that part of the country. And I was like, Oh, Oh shoot. These states are just long. Like what the yeah. hell? <laughs> so I bet you have, you've had some drives. Oh yeah. Day. Well, I mean, so three hours is not that bad. That's about how far it is from Nashville to Memphis. Yeah. Because we're already halfway, we're in the middle in Nashville. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's crazy. When you get, like, the further west you go, it seems like stuff stretches out, like like some silly putty that just got dragged by one end. And then yeah. by the time you're in, like, Texas or up north in, like, Montana, mm-hmm. and you're in the Midwest, it's just like, do these states ever end? I've been driving for 12 hours. <laughs> That's funny because when I first moved to New England, I didn't realize how small these states were, and it just like blows my mind that I can three fit three Massachusetts into one Oregon. Blows yeah. my mind. It's yeah, ridiculous. It's yeah. Um. So when uh, when all that stuff when 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 you were having to talk to Forrester and let them know like you were gonna take a different route, how did that? How did that feel? How did you even get reached out to? Like, you just, you just put it okay. on band camp. So, um, <laughs> I feel like this is part of the story I've missed out on. Oh, God. Yeah, sorry. I ellipted a lot. I think oh, no, no. Was, you're fine. Um, so there's a guy who used to book shows in Memphis um, for bands like Run Forever, Foxing, Pity Sex, like all those bands. He um, worked at several spaces, uh, and his name was Ryan Ozada. Uh, and he was in that band, that band Dads. Oh. And so Dads was on 6131. Um, but also Ryan, like, just knew a lot of people in the scene. And so he would help, like, Forrester would get on shows because he would put us on there. Or he would help us out, like, getting on a Dads show. Yeah. Um, and then when I put out my solo record, he was also kind of doing some solo stuff just for fun. And we went on a little tour together. And he shared my music to Sean, uh, who works at 6131. And then Sean reached out to me about signing and me and releasing Sprained Ankle. And I was like, well, I've got this band, and I need them to come. And so he was like, okay, word, word. Well, we'll just sign all of you. And we're going to put out this record, Sprained Ankle, and see how it does. And then um, the next record you make will be, like, a Forrester record if it, like, um, you know, if, like, nothing happens. And, like, of course, I could not have known that, like, Matador would buy my contract and that Forrester would be released from the contract. The plan was still to release the second record of that deal with Forrester, and things just didn't materialize that way. Yeah. Because even I had very low hopes for the record. I was like, I don't think this is going to be anything. Is it hopes or expectations? <laughs> expectations. I had, I had low expectations for the reception of the record. 
All right, here's our first break in the podcast to bring you a quick ad, selfishly for my own nonprofit called The Art of Survival. Um, The Art of Survival, as I've shared before on the podcast, creates artwork for trauma survivors who share their story with us uh, so that we can help stamp out stigma regarding a lot of conversations around mental health, sexual assault, as well as um, suicide prevention and just education around a lot of issues that impact a lot of people that aren't very like visible in everyday conversation. And so we really want to create a, a community of healing through sharing stories and through creating art and creating something beautiful out of something potentially um, not so beautiful. Uh, if you go to artissurvival.com, you can check out all the cool stories that we've shared over the last two years. We're coming up on our second anniversary here in April where we started uh, sharing stories about sexual assault survivors. So if you are a sexual assault survivor or you know someone who's a sexual assault survivor and you want a piece of art or they want a piece of art made by our team of artists, please reach out to us. Go to share your story uh, on our website and reach out to us and we can help you out through the process. We'd love to share your story. We'd love to help you heal. Um, We table at a lot of gigs in the Boston area to give out information and we create patches and shirts. And if you would like to have one of those, please just reach out to us and we'll send some to you. It's really, really great. Really easy for us to do and a really cool way for us to give back to the community who support us. Um, yeah, so please go to artissurvival.com if you or someone you know would like to learn more. All right, let's get back to this conversation with Julian Baker. Yeah, I guess like, so because I went to a college and was in a program where there's a lot of talk about where's like networking and getting discovered and stuff like that and I think that's almost like this mythos that surrounds how music happens organically like Mm. we were talking about earlier right like Mm. there is no like the A&R guy from Interscope is sitting in a coffee shop and he happens to discover (laughs) this great young talent no it's like maybe like 30 years ago (laughs) yeah maybe 30 years ago someone sees you at a jazz club and points yeah. to you and says, I'm going to make you a star. Yeah. But like, no one, <laughs> like, I need more of that voice. <laughs> I'm, I'm so bummed that it just came out. I'm, that's like the worst. No, I love that voice. That's a great oh voice. God. Do that great. voice. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, uh, you don't, I'll incorporate you don't need, it more. You don't need to but, do it right now. <laughs> basically like, it comes from just like forming organic relationships with people being nice to people that seems so silly and so um wholesome but really like being kind having integrity um asking to be booked on a local show showing up on time for that show being helpful and respectful at that show gives people a good impression of like this person's a good hang and then look at that you have a whole bunch of friends who also play music and statistically the more friends that you have that play music that are like hey forester are pretty all right people Mm -hmm. and like pretty good at their instruments then like the more people will ask you to play shows Mm -hmm. or say like 
the way that I recorded an entire record of sprained ankle for free or like for very little was because people just had opportunities and I was like around Mm -hmm. to make those friendships. It wasn't like me exchanging business cards with someone at a seminar. Yeah. You know, it's not like it wasn't me like that, like, (laughs) I mean, and I'm not saying that those things never work, but I'm saying that I think that bonds are more fruitful when they come from, like, you're not pursuing first success. You're pursuing first the joy of relationship and sharing music. Mm-hmm. And then second, if success comes of that, then, all right, cool. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's there's so much more uh, fruitful rich uh a different sort of fulfillment and success that comes from that than just trying to like hawk your wares like on the subway no 100 percent. it completely sounds like build your community be good yeah. to your community be good to the people. That's the one thing that I've learned. And I was talking with a buddy. We went to the Pianos Become the Teeth gig last night here in the town. And it was so good. It was great. And I walked out and there's one of my buddies who's in a couple bands. He, he didn't go to the gig, but he was just hanging out. He's like, I knew people were going to be at this gig and I want to hang out with folks after the gig. So I'm just coming here to chat. And we just chatted about how, like, I came to Boston only a few years ago. And when I first got here, I just started going to gigs. And then I started asking, how can I help out at some of the gigs? How can I use my <clears throat> my role as an educator to even like table at some of these gigs? How can I bring some education here? How can we help? And now it's turned into this thing where like we're part of the community now. I'm actually, I've recruited people to help make music with me now. And that was not my first in. Like, I was not trying to make music with these people first. It was more of, I I love what's going on here and I want to help. And when when I see more folks doing that, when I saw folks doing that when I was booking gigs in, in Oregon in college, and I saw people with that hustle, with that integrity and those ethics, those are the people that I gave gigs. People who showed up. 10 minutes before their gig had to assemble everything before their set and then left after their set. It's like, you don't really care about this. Do you? All right. That's yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> and the thing that's weird is that sometimes those people who are out to like that success is the primary ambition for them. Sometimes those people do gain a moderate level of success, but then I feel like, it's not lasting. Yeah. You know, like, or it feels somehow artificial. And at the Um, end of the day, like if you haven't built any sort of that community around when you're done, like who do you have with you still at the end? Like who's there with you? Mm -hmm. Like that, that becomes a pretty, um, I don't know, a tough, a tough situation to be in. Um, But it sounds like we got into a little bit of what I was hoping to get into about what you've learned in your time in the music industry so far but i also think it's interesting something i didn't learn or know is this part about forrester and matador um how did the matador conversation even come up i was one i was stoked when i saw you sign to matador because i'm a huge interpol fan nice. <laughs> long time interpol fan so i was like hell yeah i've been seeing that flag on records 
for so many years now, and I get to see it yep. on uh, Julian B's stuff. How did that even come about? Um, they, like, when I signed with a booking agent, and that booking agent started putting me on, like, m- more support shows mm-hmm. for, like, like, Elvi mm-hmm. and, like, playing more, I guess, successful shows, then um, things started to pick up a little bit, and um, they approached us, along with a couple of other labels, uh, just pursuing, like, to sign me out of my deal with 6131. Mm-hmm. So, like, they came to shows, because, like, somebody from A&R was at a show at, like, that I played with, I don't even remember who. It couldn't have been the pet. No, that was later that I played with Petal hmm. and Phoebe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, came to a show in uh, like Manhattan at. Uh, I always say either Mercy Lounge or Mercury Lounge, and one is wrong. There's a um, <laughs> Mercy Lounge, I think, is in New York, but there's one in um, Nashville. And I always confuse them. Um, but yeah, so I played a show there. A There's a Mercy Lounge in Nashville, but you said... it's Mercury Lounge Mercury in Lounge. New York. Yeah. Yep, it is. Yeah. And they came to, like, more shows, and we just kind of tried to see which label would be the best fit, and uh, ended up going with Matador. That's tight. That's really awesome. Yeah. Do you feel good about it still? I do feel good about it. I feel good that we didn't, like... There was really never a time in my mind where I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll sign to a major label. Like, I just think it was just never, like, an option in my brain. Yeah. But I love Matador because they're very artist-driven. Mm-hmm. Also, it's a label who put out, like, Perfume Genius, Cat Power, and Ceremony, and Fucked Up. So, like, And Queens of I'm the right. Stone Age, and, like... Yeah. There's, there's well, such a range to what Matador Yeah, signs. that's what I'm saying. Like, it's such a variant label yeah very diverse so yeah yeah. that's awesome yeah i'm really stoked about it all right Jacqueline here from In Between Spins. I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Edgepunks podcast. I'm just dropping by to tell you a little bit more about In Between Spins. It probably comes as no surprise that I love collecting vinyl. It's been a hobby and a huge obsession of mine for over a decade. And over the years, I've had the pleasure of meeting and connecting with other femme and non-binary vinyl collectors through social media and record fairs. However, this space is still heavily dominated by men. And this is why I created In Between Spins. Every week, I'll share pieces of my record collection, books I'm reading, art I'm enjoying, and whatever else I'm doing in between spinning records. In addition to a YouTube channel dedicated to femme and non-binary vinyl collectors, our first quarterly zine will also be available to purchase with all proceeds going to Trinity Place Shelter, a homeless shelter in New York City for LGBTQ youth. This first zine is centered on feminism and how we navigate relationships with male figures in our lives. If you'd like to get involved with the channel or zine, feel free to reach out to me on social media or email hello at inbetweenspins.com. Talk to you all soon and enjoy the rest of this episode.
about in between spins, please give them a follow. All right, let's get back to this conversation with Julian Baker. So you and I have talked about recovery a bit in the past, and you share, um, you you've shared a little bit about this um, uh, in like other interviews and whatnot. But what does like your continued ongoing recovery look like, just in general as a person, and um, how do you keep yourself? clean and doing good things in the world <laughs> how does my ongoing recovery look like for me as a person um what's interesting is that like now it has just become a part of me through my like routine and it also helps that I like I've had the fortune of being around people who are either just straight up sober as well or that are incredibly supportive of Mm. my sobriety so like um or just like my recovery in general because it's not just sobriety right it's not Mm -hmm. just like oh now that I've removed uh alcohol and substances from my life everything else is chill like Mm -hmm. that's not how it works um not at all (laughs) no (laughs) but um I think, like, man, that's such a big question. Sorry. No, it's totally <laughs> fine. I'm just trying to think of, like, because now ongoing recovery or, like, taking care of myself has a lot less to do with me feeling, like, tempted to pick the bottle back up again. You know, mm-hmm. like, it's been so long that it's almost just, like, that's... I know it's still there. Like, that part of me shouldn't be ignored or, like, declared um, non-threatening. Because, Mm -hmm. like, that's what happens with people who relapse after 10 years, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's no longer a priority taking care and balancing stress and coping mechanisms. Like, those things fall out of um, focus and then... You're just like, oh, why not do this thing again? Because we forget. So I think honestly having to talk about and revisit and keep the reasons behind those decisions in like in my day-to-day dialogue because of whatever like interviews or the conversations I have with other people, that helps me reaffirm for myself why I made these decisions in the first place. Um, no, I, I get exactly what you're saying, especially around <clears throat> how it's kind of always there and something that, um, when I was getting sober, uh, so I'm like five and a half years in, in now and it feels great, but like you're saying it, the sobriety also just becomes a part of you at a certain point, but in the back of my brain, like it, this happens when I'm at grocery store, sometimes I'll walk down a beer aisle and I'm like, in a couple of years, I could probably have a beer. I just have that thought. And in my brain, I'm like, yeah, that would be fine. And then I remember, oh, shit. Remember those days you don't remember? No, you yeah. can't pick up another beer. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, like, I'd like to think that maybe there will be a time when I'm <clears throat> 45 and I can have wine with dinner and be okay. Yeah. But I think, but, like, that is a really far off and b i forget because it's not a part of my like arsenal of coping mechanisms like sometimes i'll feel a really awful way or feel you know 
incredibly anxious and remember that there's something that could make me feel absolutely nothing if I really wanted to. And that is precisely why I have to like have the perspective to step back and say, is that's not how those substances are supposed to be utilized. And so that's why you can't deal with them at all. Oh, yeah. um, and there are plenty of people that can, and I'm not one of those people. Um, I'm envious of the folks who can function. Dude, I know. My partner is like that. My partner, like, drinks socially very infrequently, and it's a healthy relationship. I'm just like, how? How do you do this? Mm -hmm. Um, But that's the thing. Like, I think with everything, not just with substances, but with ongoing awareness of mental health, I'm a very verbal person. um, And conversation uh and language is kind of my medium of of communication that I like best um and so I find myself needing to do these daily affirmations to other people where I'll say out loud they'll say like how are you doing and I'll say I'm all right. I'm just having like some anxiety about this thing, but I know that it's irrational because this reason and the benefit of me going on the spiel about, um, I'm struggling with this right now, but it's irrational. And here are the practical ways in which I'm going to do it, uh, going to cope with it. (laughs) The benefit is not for that person understanding me. It's for me. Yes. Speaking aloud those like things, those goals those convictions so that I remember them. Well, um, it's your truth too. It's your truth. And it's funny yeah. because I do that too. People are like, how are you doing today? I'm like, well, I'm, t- I'm very okay today. I'm, my heart's like kind of freaking out. So I'm going to, I'm drinking a bunch of water today. I'm mm-hmm. worried about a run I'm going on later just cause like, I don't like my legs are sore and they're like, I didn't need all of this. I'm like, no, I, I, I can tell you didn't, you don't care about this. I get that. But for me, I need to remind myself, even though I feel this way, I should still take care of myself. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Or when you're just like, you know, I'm not going to feel guilt about this thing because like Mm -hmm. saying those things out loud is helpful because, um, and interestingly, like there's this phrase that like, um, the woman that was the pastor of a church I attended here in Murfreesboro used to say, which is like prayer shapes belief, but anthropologically and sociologically, like language shapes belief Mm -hmm. and you language shapes our self perception. It shapes how we perceive other people. It's precisely why like there's so much political about language and why if you look on any social media feed, language and the vocabulary that we use is constantly being tweaked Mm -hmm. because it reveals our subconscious to us Mm -hmm. and so if language shapes our belief like it's really important that the way we speak about ourselves and the way we speak about our actions Mm -hmm. like reinforces the beliefs that we have so that's why i think talking about like having conversations like this is Mm -hmm. uh is really important (laughs) Oh yeah, and exactly. I really, um, I really like kind of hit on what you said, where um, 
there's a lot of times where even just a good self-affirmation can get me through. And that's why I, <clears throat> I love those like uh, affirmation cards that I have. And I, I gave you a bunch of them. Yeah. But I feel like every time I like just pull one out or even anytime I see one of my students take one and I see that them, them smile and they're like, I am going to take care of myself today. I'm like, yes. Cause that's like, even if you've never thought of taking care of yourself, that is the first step of actually finding what could be your form of self care. And so like those first steps are so huge, can be so huge. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Well, just listening to like what, your body or your mind needs like i think self-knowledge is also really important mm. like and that comes with time that definitely right? comes with time true you can't like <clears throat> know why you're doing a thing mm. until you start to analyze a pattern you know and so like for me that's very important like now with anxiety like when i respond to things in an anxious way or i start to have a panic attack when it's not warranted i try to like identify like what a about what am I doubting right now mm-hmm. or what don't I have faith is going to work out or, or what's the real motivation behind this anxiety so that I can deal with that instead of take it out on the people around me you know what I mean yeah. through being anxious and erratic <laughs> so so you're you uh, even in your how you describe yourself you're a touring musician how do you take care of those things while you're out on the road. Um, Does playing music still feel like some form of self-care for you though, at the same time? Mm. All of that. Yes. Yes. Actually, like this is a thing that I've talked a lot about with my friends who also tour, but humans are really quick to categorize and like compartmentalize things because I think it helps us like make neat little places where everything belongs. So we do that with other people when we make generalizations and when we make assumptions about them. Um, We do that with our politics, you know what I mean? Like it's easier to say Democrat or Republican, liberal or conservative than it is to break down the nuance and complexity of each person's ideology. Mm-hmm. We also, I feel like we want consistency and permanence. And so with other people's identity, it's hard for us to accept things like, you may not be the same person that you were a month ago mm-hmm. or a year ago. Um, it's hard for us to accept that gender is fluid because we mm-hmm. want easy answers. So like <laughs> when I say, all I've ever done and all I've ever taken refuge in is music. Um, It's hard for me when music doesn't work to understand that like, that doesn't mean that music will never work again. It means that what I need right now is silence or what I need right now is to go on a run and not listen to music. Or when I play music and nothing comes out, it doesn't mean that music doesn't have a cathartic purpose in my life. It just means that I went from music being the thing that I got to do after I had been working for 10 hours every day to like the thing I can do whenever I want because it's my job now. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
to love a thing doesn't mean that you have to be constantly engaged with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but it was hard because I was like, sometimes I, like, every time I get on stage, it's like an out-of-body experience. Like, you know, not like I know, a complete, I know exactly what you mean. I know exactly like, what you mean. Yeah, like, I'm not, you know... George Clinton, like, beaming up to the mothership and, like, totally <laughs> leaving my body. That's not what I mean. No. I just mean, like, somebody asked me once in an interview, like, why my eyes are always closed during shows. And it's because I just want to go to the place that I have gone to since I was 12 years old when I sit and play guitar and everything else is quiet. <laughs> Mm. and like my mind isn't constantly racing and that's a place that i get to go every night at the show but like and, but and you're sharing and you're sharing it with like thousands of people dude <laughs> well and it's crazy but like, you I, I, this five foot nothing <laughs> like, are be, the focus in that moment <laughs> yeah i so i just like black out a lot but like I try to since I've started touring I've been working on being more present on like opening my eyes and realizing like where I am in this moment um but yeah that said you know there are times when like it's time to sound check and I don't want to play guitar because none of us have slept and we made an overnight drive and we haven't eaten and I really just want to curl up in a ball and on the floor and go to bed but like i've seen on instagram you'd still do that <laughs> you still do you still curl I, up in the ball <laughs> i still curl up in a ball on the ground at least three times a tour um, if not more okay it's time for the music break portion of the podcast i'm excited to bring you the title track from julian's new album turn out the lights which was released by matador records in october you can still get physical copies of this album uh, in your local record stores or by going to matadorrecords.com. They still have some presses up there as well as some uh, CDs if you want CDs or digital copies as well. Uh, you can even go over to 6131 Records and get a copy of her first record sprained ankle on a cool little purple vinyl pressing as well as a copy of the new album turn out the lights and if you like what you hear and are in the uk julian is currently inside of the united kingdom touring uh, all the uk and uh, ireland until the end of march and then she will come over to the United States and play a bunch of gigs throughout the month of April, playing most of the East Coast and the Midwest. Make sure to go to JillianBaker.com to check out all of her tour dates. They're also on all of her social media as well. And now here is Turn Out the Lights by Julian Baker. There's a hole in the drywall still just haven't gotten around to it And besides, starting to get used to the gaps Say you wish you could find some way to, to be so hard on myself So why is it easy for everyone? 
Turn out the lights by Julian Baker. If you liked what you heard, go to julianbaker.com and figure out how you can go see her on tour throughout March and April. And she's going to be playing like every festival this summer. So if you want to see her, you're going to have a lot of chances. And go to matadorrecords.com if you want to get a copy of her new album. All right, let's finish up this conversation. Also, just a heads up, uh, Julian's audio gets a little bubbly um, throughout this next this little last little bit here so just stick with it we'll get through it together i I promise it's worth it i promise given uh the political landscape and activism and everything else going on in the world how much fatigue do you tend to feel in the chaos of it all Mm. (laughs) this is like a booby trap answer it's a booby (laughs) trap answer because my brain can never just feel this is one thing that I'm working on uh, feeling confident and uh, like my emotions have value not measured against someone else's experience hmm. um, because like today uh, I'm still reading the updates in the news on um, the students uh, speaking to Marco Rubio mm-hmm. about gun control and uh legislation on uh, being able to purchase machine guns, which is just absurd. But I'm tempted to say, ah, oh, man, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted that 
every single time I open my phone or go outside, that there's like a fresh horror to be confronted with. But then I'm, I can't really be that exhausted because there's so many, like there are people who are more proximal to it, who are more engaged with it. There are people who are public defenders. There are people who work at organizations here in Nashville that are like uh, social organizing groups that I'm not a part of because I'm not home consistently enough to like make any lasting contributions. So anything I can do is sporadic at best. So I could say I'm mentally exhausted, but then I have this like wave of guilt um, <laughs> guilt, and like uh, holding myself accountable for like, what really though on the level of suffering are you experiencing? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's the long answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, I totally get it. And it's hard to like, it's hard to keep up with it all. And like, I, I struggle even like we had a whole episode on this podcast where Katie and I just talked uh, about um, one of the earlier, I think it was the, t- the one of the early tax bills and how it was looking to like change the loan restructuring and take away loan forgiveness and all this other stuff that affected colleges. And we were just like, there's just so much happening right now. There's so much. And it's a lot. But I- Well, yeah, because like right now, what's eclipsing the public dialogue Sorry, excuse me. I'm going to be gross. I, I replaced cigarettes with gum chewing, and so yeah. I'm just like... Uh, One thing uh, with another thing. Right? Um, <laughs> wow. I sound like a cow chewing its cud. But, oh, um, yeah. I forget how country you are at times. <laughs> shut up, dude. Um, <laughs> bro. <laughs> okay. So, right now, what's eclipsing the public discourse is gun control Mm -hmm. because we just experienced yet another tragedy related to the availability of firearms. Um, And yet it's still a mental health issue and not an availability of firearms issue. Like God forbid it be both, you know, anyway. And we had the uh, mental health uh, guideline restriction like withdrawn like almost that was one of the first things that was done in the administration whatever freaking wild oh also um we're gonna structure healthcare to make it harder to get the care that you need yeah so like (laughs) all of these insane contradictory policies are still swirling about in the perimeter of what's in our focus right now but because this is taking i mean and as it should like it's an incredible loss it's a horrible tragedy and i think that we should take the time to grieve and to um validate and recognize what those students have been through but what i'm saying is that like the globalization of media and the availability of information means that so much is still happening. Like all the other bills that are complicit in further screwing up our broken system did not just like halt because this happened, but how are we supposed to reserve attention and focus for all of them? What's like, what I think and what I think is wonderful, what you're getting at, it plays very well to the fact that you just put a piece of gum in your mouth because it's called 
walking and chewing gum at the same time. We can do gun control while we take care of fixing healthcare, while we take care of ta- like we can do all of these things at the same time and not lose the value of the worth like that mm-hmm. these things hold. Right. It's not hard. I know. Well, I, I mean like and to a certain extent like that is something that I expect of <clears throat> lawmakers. Yeah. But I can't expect that of lawmakers because there are senators that are like deriding children on the internet for speaking up about laws that they want passed. Um, And that's the thing is like, you start to get overwhelmed by the presence of just like when so much amasses like when so many problems build up i think it forces a lot of people into paralysis or like a learned helplessness like that principle that even if i vote i live in a heavily republican state and dude freaking bob bob corker bob corker is the guy Mm -hmm. i gotta ask to get something done yeah bob corker tennessee like gee whiz like we have some cool like there's a bunch well, of cool uh, Congress people. Well, and you also have a professional wrestler running for mayor in Knox, right? In Knox County. Yeah. I was looking at the Glenn Jacobs. I hope this is a myth. I hope this is a myth. But I also kind of hope it's real. Um, I was looking at potential candidates for the midterm elections in 2018. And it was like people who had declared that they were definitely running and then people who hadn't but might. And one of them was Tim McGraw, <laughs> the dude who sings that like song about going skydiving and Rocky Mountain climbing. But his dad won a World Series, so with the Philadelphia Phillies. So, oh my he, god, he knows a thing or two Bird. about. I don't know, <laughs> but um, going down. He run as a Democrat, so. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, but still, like, I don't, I don't know how I feel about a lot of. Oh we don't my have god! A good track record of celebrities doing stuff, dude. Awful, awful. Also, like, I said the Democrat thing is a joke because, and I've been saying this for at least a year, if not longer. The bipartisan system, come on, yeah, it's like the biggest ruse of all time. You're just, <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. It's just like six of one, half dozen of another. You yep. know what I mean? I don't so, know. Never mind. I was about to be like, Steve Cohen's pretty cool, and he's just like <laughs> the district guy. Of like, no one cares. <laughs> Unless you're in district whatever listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I've always uh, uh, kind of admired since the first interview I saw of yours, which I think was Audio Tree, um, I was just like kind of blown away just by – not necessarily, and I I think I sent you this question like how brilliant well brilliantly well smoking you were not as like a talking down kind of thing but more of like I don't think I have as had as much wisdom as you have in your brain when I was your age and that's a, not, again another generational thing in my head and it just makes me think of the educators and the the sources you were seeking out growing up what mm. what role did did educators did folks in your life mentors shape your life growing up huge yeah like even when i i can remember when i was in elementary school um 
so like I skipped a grade where um, I was like advanced grade uh, when I was young and I was still kind of a misbehaving um, petulant child <laughs> uh, and so my teachers and like some of the administration like suggested to my parents that I just be heavily medicated for ADHD. Like Same. just pump this child full of Ritalin and she'll be fine. Same. And I had this <laughs> one Apex teacher that was on my mom's side that was like, oh, Apex is like, whatever. It's called something different everywhere. Like uh, Spotlight or whatever, Gifted, Talented. It's yeah. just like. Talented and gifted is what we had. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, but so I had this one teacher that was on my parents' side. I was like, I don't think this child needs Adderall. Mm -hmm. I just think this child needs attention. Yeah. And, like, having one teacher that said that made the difference between me just being medicated and um taught obedience and like uh submission and compliance rather than being taught critical thinking and uh, having my inquisitive mind nurtured and cultivated um and this also brings up so then i got into middle school and high school and there were of course a slew of awful teachers or, okay never mind whoa 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 let me take that back <laughs> being a teacher is maybe the hardest job of ever um so they weren't awful they just had a teaching style that was like not how i learned this is also a progressive idea that it shouldn't be a progressive idea, but it's not how schools are taught, especially not in America and especially not in Tennessee. If a child doesn't learn the way that you're teaching, it's that child's problem. It is a behavior problem. It is not a problem with you needing to diversify your curriculum. It is not a problem with you not meeting that child where they are. And so, like, I wouldn't click with a number of other teachers and i was constantly in trouble i mean constantly i, Same. Had I was so always much. at the principal's office but all it took was one or two teachers to say you are smart you are so bad at math you are so bad at science You're pretty <laughs> darn bad at history but boy can you write and I was like, oh, cool. Wow, thank you. And so instead of focusing on just trying to get me, I mean, like, yeah, I had to study harder for math, so I didn't freaking fail. But, like, I had um, Spanish teachers who were like, oh, wow, you're pretty good at language. And English teachers who realized that I was pretty good at English who nurtured and cultivated that area of my intellect and poured time into me. And, uh, you know, that happened by them doing things outside of just saying, hey, you're good at that. It it was like my Spanish teacher who refused to give me a zero when I got suspended for tell. Do you remember from earlier in this conversation, the coach that told all the kids it was okay to get wasted when they were 14? Yes. <laughs> when I told that dude that I had zero respect for him and I hated his class and got suspended, 
another I told another teacher what happened and she refused to give me zeros because she was like, I understand how it is to hate that. Oh man. All it took was like having my worth reaffirmed by someone in a position of relative authority for me to like think that it was worth it to continue growing my intellect. Damn. All of these things point to a really, really huge problem in the education system, which I'm super aware of. Um, the reason why I had a really great teacher with a master's degree and like all this childhood development knowledge at my elementary school who planted the first seed that like maybe I wasn't bad, maybe I was different. The difference between bad and different happened in elementary school and it's because I'm a white kid who went to a middle class suburban elementary school oh. and we had funding for those things mm -hmm. and I was like because of my race and my geographic location and my economic position like my everything about my education I had a leg ahead because I was provided with those resources those are those are phenomenons that like just I mean like I'm from Memphis and I don't know if you know anything about the like situation where the city schools got absorbed into the county schools mm -mm. and like <clears throat> stuff went crazy because they were going to take all the people from the inner city schools and put like restructure everything like rezone and those kids were going to be going to the county and hopefully have like more funding that was going to be coming from the wealthier uh, suburban areas outside the inner city district and in the wealthier rural areas where people are retiring with huge new build homes. Um, and then schools were like declaring themselves their own municipalities so that they could get out of the system because they didn't want to have kids from the inner city bust in and they didn't want to pay taxes that were going to benefit those kids because we just wanted to leave the economically disadvantaged like out on their own to flounder. Oh my God. And like, that's the thing that sucks is that like I once had a, <clears throat> I'm sorry to like go on this rant, but like I once had a professor that I told, I want to teach in public schools. And she said, why would you squander your intellect like that? You need to teach in college. And I thought, are you serious? Like, <laughs> what you're saying to me is that a public school and the students there, even though their mind is as ripe, at, contains as much potential because they're a child and they still have time to develop, they're not worth it. The only reason they could be not worth it is because they are, what's the thing that makes them different from the kid at the private school? their social standing. Like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But that's our subconscious bias in yeah. education. And I know that I have that privilege and many other people don't. Yeah. So like, maybe that is why I'm a musician. Maybe that is why I have the confidence to say, my voice matters. Mm -hmm. What about people who were told constantly their voice doesn't matter? Like, yeah. 
I don't know. Like, I'm sorry. I just get so angry about it because we are like in the middle still in the middle of still trying to legislate away the ability of educators to do that. Like mm-hmm. when you probably experience it most, I mean, like you work on a campus. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I experience it every day and I work at the public university in Boston and because everything else is private, private universities. And most of my students are black or are immigrants or are international students or are Muslim or uh, whatever. And a lot of them, many of them tell me, like when I say to them, like, oh, like I'll hear like some of, some of my black students like rapping and they're, they have like great flow. And I'm like, man, your flow is sick. And he's like, really? You think? I'm like, yeah, no, it's really good. And he's like, oh. No one's really like compl- like because like the, in their circles they talk about it differently. But like I come in and I'm like, no, that's really great. Like if you want to like talk about rhyming and stuff, I'm I'm a trained poet. We could do this. Like we could sit down and do this. And he's like, shit, shoot, that sounds sweet. All right. And some some students come into my office and they see the degrees on my wall and they're like, that's what I want. I want to get there. And I'm like, well, you can. If you want it, you can do it. You can do that here. And I will help you if this is something you want to achieve. I'll help you take Mm -hmm. care of yourself while you're here. And some of those students are hearing that for the first time. They're they're told throughout so many levels of education that they're not going to like have any worth. And it's heartbreaking as an educator. Yeah. Or like the, the responsibility, even as a child is like shifted onto them when people don't realize like, that priorities work different in their lives because so many things that I took for granted as a child, like that I would not have to be evicted from my home and move to a different home upwards of four times a year. Like Mm -hmm. that I took for granted. I took for granted that like, I don't know, like just so many things that I'll never have to worry about. And then people, will turn around and use that as ammunition of like, oh, well, they must not really want it, like, because they didn't even bring their book to class or they can't afford. But, like, yo, books yeah. cost money. Yeah, books. Like, I had this one professor in college that was, like, he, he would, like, print out all the readings that we needed and, like, Xerox them himself because he was like, I can't believe they expect y'all to pay $200 for college. Yep. Textbook. And I was like, yeah, why do you think, like, right out the gate, it's like a grand, even if you get a full ride. It sucks. Like yep. we don't we don't really want to educate nope. people. Like nope. we uh, want to make money and it's uh-huh. a joke. And um I know we're getting down on our time, but like one kind of final thought I'm having through all of this is if we're really wanting to make education a priority, it has to be accessible. And it cannot be a some people get this. The people who have the means can get this. It's not, it is a thing that needs to be available. And one of the things that I, I still do with my students is if I can tell that they're like, if I talk to a student and say, like, hey, uh, have you eaten today? And they're like, no, I haven't really had time. I'm like, well, I have an apple. I have a banana if you need something right now. And they're like, oh, like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah, here have this because sometimes I'll do talks on like wellness and eating well and, and taking care of yourself. And a lot of them are like, I don't have the money to do that. I'm like, well, I will, I will bring apples and 
uh, oranges and bananas to my office and you can always come get them then. Okay. Like- <laughs> this, this is a great full circle to, because, you know, statistically the, the markers of privilege in today's society are no longer like, um, fashion and like luxury jewelry. They are mm-hmm. things like $12 smoothies and like, freaking crazy yoga classes and like soul cycle and those are the kinds of luxury items that the wealthy use and so i often feel like a bizarre i i feel it and i should be aware of it because it is a privilege to say like mind body wellness is something that's important to me like we were talking about earlier with diet and food but think about this so like I know I just acted like I was going to drop some crazy stuff. <laughs> I know um, you even got, you even like no. readjusted. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it makes me infu- infuriated um, when I saw the article about them changing the kinds of foods that you're allowed to buy with your free lunch in public schools. Here, Here is why that's important on many levels. Because A, uh, students like sh- – First of all, like, you probably have a deal, like, with an enormous factory farming giant global foods corporation. Yep. It does not cost you that much money to give a child chicken nuggets instead of a cheese sandwich. Mm-hmm. Because um, when I got, like, when I went to school, the thing that you got if you forgot your lunch money was a cheese sandwich. Yeah. And, like, okay, whatever. But the psychological implication is that it subconsciously conveys to a child that they're not worth even the same nourishment, Hmm. that their body is not as important, that only the rich people, the people that can pay, should get the chicken nuggets or the burger or whatever, and they get the peanut butter jelly sandwich because they're poor, and then the... the like cycle of them thinking that only the inferior is accessible or going to be given to them is like constructed as early as grade school. Mm -hmm. It's not just about their bodies not getting the nutrition they need. It's about like, what? why would you make that kind of distinction to a child only? The only justification is just, like, to reinforce some grotesque capitalist rhetoric that, like, you get what you earn. But, like, children shouldn't be culpable for that kind of, like, fucked up economic stratification. Yeah, and that sends them a message. It sends them a message. Like, this is what you're worth. Yes! This is your worth. You're worth less than people that can pay. Like, yep. why and they see their friends. They see their friends either buying a lunch or bringing a nicer packed lunch, and they're like, "Oh, I guess this is me now." Yeah, like it's shame yeah. because the United States shames is poor. So like, well, anyway, okay. I'm glad that we got to the United States shames it's poor. Um, right as the podcast is ready. <laughs> That's like volume two. Oh and my I'll, gosh! I'll just like pop out my all my Kurt Vonnegut quotes then. Yay! But like... <laughs> well, 
Dude, I'm so thankful you spent so much time to chat with me. Um, yeah. Cannot wait to see you again in human form. Thank you so much for chatting with me. This was great. I'm, finally, I'm glad we finally got it to work out. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me and for being so patient. And um, let me know when it's up. And then I'll see you in Rhode Island. Yeah, in a couple, a few weeks. Hell yeah. Nice. All right, well, I'm going to eat some more oatmeal so I can carb load. <laughs> nice. And I'm going to go run before uh, I think some snow comes. <laughs> nice. Well, stay warm, and uh, I'll talk to you later. All right, take it easy. All right, bye. All right. We did it! That's it. That's the end of another episode. I uh, really want to thank Julian Baker for sitting down with me uh, a couple weeks ago to chat about life and all things uh, good and challenging in the world. If you want a little bit more, Julian and I got on a little bit of a tangent specifically about running and self-care and how we both use it um, in our lives. So that conversation will be posted uh, by the weekend. So you'll get a little bit more of a conversation from us. Again, if you like what you heard from Julian, uh, please go to julianbaker.com. Uh, go to 6131 Records if you want to check out her first album, Sprained Ankle. Go to Matador Record for Records for her new album, Turn Out the Lights. She's on tour right now throughout the UK and Ireland throughout the, uh, the month of March. And then in April, she will be in the United States. And throughout May and the entire summer, she's doing a bunch of festivals. Uh, so it's really, really exciting time to catch her on tour, see her all of the times everywhere. If you want to support uh, the Art of Survival, my nonprofit, uh, go to artissurvival.com. Uh, if you or someone you know are a trauma survivor and would like some art for sharing your story about how you have survived and how you have healed, and hopefully we can bring you healing and create a bigger, stronger community together. If you also want to support Jacqueline O'Connell's project, In Between Spins, please give her a follow over at In Between Spins on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and go to InBetweenSpins.com tomorrow, International Women's Day. That's when it launches. Such an exciting time for Jacqueline's new project. Cannot wait to see all the cool stuff that she creates with it. And... Uh, if you still want to enter our vinyl giveaway, go to our social media at EduPunksPod, share the image. You can win a free copy of the new S. Carey album, 100 Acres, which is out through Jag Jaguar Records, and the new Howdy record, Cranberry, which is out on Double Double Whammy. I love that both of those record labels have repeated words in their names. That is fantastic. Okay, I think I'm done. If you want to follow me, go to at Craigbittedman on Twitter and uh, Instagram. That's all I got. Thanks again to Julian Baker for being uh, a badass and a really good human being. I'm going to leave you with some tunes from one of her songs called Appointments. And yeah, look out for the extra episode this weekend and I'll see you next week. Let's get to work.
pictured in 